Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I will wait on the Lord. My soul waits in his word, I hope. My, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. I have calmed and quieted my soul. Lord God, thank you for the scripture that you have given us. Thank you for the first of your hymnal people who sang this as they made Aliyah toward, Israel, toward Jerusalem. And Lord, we come this day and say, Baruch Hashem, blessed be your name. And Lord, bless us this day. Value us much, much more than we value you. But increase our trust in you, our love of you, our joy in you, that by our trust we may bless you as you bless us. Touch grant this day, through him speak to us. For we ask these things in the name of the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. Amen, amen. Thank you, my dear brother. I'm talking to Fenton out and then in the quad, just reflecting on Psalm 130, going, I can't believe I get to preach this today. Like, I'm the luckiest schmuck. It's, it's just so good. I've just been so excited to preach this psalm, just to spend, you know, several minutes thinking about this. And I want to talk about redemption, and I want to talk about mission, and I want to talk about reconciliation, and I want to talk about mercy, and I want to talk about forgiveness. But the truth of this psalm is that all of that starts in a pit. And this is a common image in the psalm. But the truth is that all of us, at one time or another, end up in a pit. And you probably know what it feels like to be in a pit. And some of the pits are dark and deep, and they have... Um, hey, Phil, my, my thing's not working. If you want to try to keep up, I don't know. Poor Phil. I, I set him up. That's my fault. Um, but there I am, in a pit. Some are deep and dark, and you feel like you'll never get out. And there's just horror upon horror in this pit. And other pits, maybe they're more like ruts. They're, they're shallow, but you can't seem to get out of them. It's not the worst bad habit in the world. It's not the worst crisis in the world. But man, you, you sure do feel stuck there. Psalm 130 is about a particular kind of pit. From the depths, the psalmist prays out. 
It's about a particular kind of pit that people find themselves in. And this one hurts maybe more than other pits. It's a self-inflicted pit. You did it yourself. It wasn't that life was hard. It was that you were dumb. And the dumber you are, the harder life is. I think life is hard for good decision makers, but I don't have a whole lot of experience with that. I have more experience being dumb. And it leaves you in pits. It is sin. It is the sin of the psalmist that has been the problem. And we'll see that as we go. But you know, it's one thing to deal with societal sin. To say, oh, we as a nation are in a pit. That's one, that's one particular thing. It's another thing, and these are all you know, important and things to think about, but it's another thing to deal with the sins that people have committed against you, and, and that'll cause you to feel like you're in a pit too, that other people have wronged you. But this particular psalm isn't about those. This particular psalm is about being stuck in a pit that I dug myself. In the Combs family, we say a lot, the first rule of holes is that when you figure out you're in one, stop digging. <laughs> and that's important to think about. But sometimes by the time you figure out you're in the depths, and there's the sting of shame, and there's the sting of guilt, that can be a pretty dark place. And I would ask if you've been there, but I know you have. Have you ever had your mouth or your decision-making or your actions put your whole life in a pit? In the depths? Even more specifically, the pit that the psalmist is addressing really isn't even about external circumstances. It's not that you've made bad decisions and so you lost money or, or, or you've made somebody mad and now there's conflict. No, particularly what is on the psalmist's heart is the pit of shame, of guilt. You know, the problem with guilt and shame is that we are not even under a delusion that there are earthly solutions to that. We try some things. Uh, you know, we try ignoring guilt and shame. We say, ah, it's just a holdover from our puritanical Roots, there's really no such thing as sin anyway, as long as you're being true to yourself. And you know, if that works for you, God bless you, but it doesn't work forever. At some point. In fact, I'll even say it this way. People that love you are praying that at some point you get to the point where you go, there's not enough ignoring to do. I am in a pit. I feel guilty. There's shame. My sin feels like it's crushing me. You know, we justify behavior in all kinds of ways. I think it's a pretty, actually, a pretty popular philosophical bent. Pure materialism. To just say, look, any guilt, any shame, anything you feel that's wrong, it's just electrical impulses in your brain. There's really no such thing. And yet the psalmist, if like even you can talk like that at a, at a cocktail party, but then you go back to your house and you go, so why? 
if this is all just impulses, electrical impulses in my brain. If, as long as I'm being true to myself, everything's fine. Why do I still feel like my sin leaves me in a pit of shame and guilt? We try other things too. We try behavior modification, right? I feel bad about this thing I'm doing, so I'm going to find a way to stop doing this. There's a wisdom to that. If you are doing the same thing that causes you to feel bad all the time, stopping doing that is a pretty good thing. But my experience is that the journey of behavior modification, of just finding a way to, to live wiser without like getting, without solving the problem of shame and guilt in your, in your heart is like a big game of whack-a-mole where you knock down this behavior and it pops up over here. There's a line in a song that I love that says, I repent of changing, of trading sins for others that are easier to hide. I stopped drinking, but I'm full of bitterness. Hmm. We use self-help strategies. And, you know, I think there's a lot of really good work being done right now on you know, if you're exhausted and miserable, try a nap, a snack, and a, you know, clean your room. I think it's great. These are all wisdom just comes from God. There's a lot of wisdom in just taking care of yourself. And you're going to have to decide on your own if there's enough of that to get out of a pit of shame and guilt. We try modern conveniences. We try keeping ourselves entertained. That's a huge one, right? Just like one meme at a time, I'm going to ignore this guilt. One game at a time, one YouTube video at a time, one gadget at a time. We can keep ourselves distracted from guilt for a while. But really, we have no tools in the bag for actually dealing with guilt and shame. And if we think about this psalm in the context of the Songs of Ascents, where we're almost done. We've got, I think, two more sermons with a missionary on the 10th in the middle, something like that. Like, we are almost done with our journey, our meta uh, metaphorical journey to Jerusalem. We're thinking about the pilgrims that walked for days or weeks as families. You think about what more important thing, if you have your kids with you, if you have other family members with you, what else do you need to impart in life on that hike? Then, son, you're going to make mistakes. Sometimes you're going to run your life into a ditch. You're going to feel like you're in a pit. Here's what to do with shame and guilt. What more important song could be sung that teaches us, that reminds each other how to get rid of guilt and shame? When I make mistakes and end up in the depths, how do I get out? Well, you begin with a cry out to God for mercy. The cry of mercy is what gets you out of the pit first. Out of the depths, I cry, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Now, maybe you are too sophisticated and modern to cry out for mercy. And I would really encourage you to get over that. 
Because this is about salvation, but it's not just about initial salvation. I've been saved. I've been a Christian. I don't know if there's a time I ever wasn't. Like I got on my knees and prayed to ask Jesus into my heart when I was six years old. I think at five, if you would have asked me, did Jesus die for your sins? I'd have said yes. There was never a time when I was you know, full on running away from God. And yet I have needed God to save me from guilt and shame over and over and over and over. One of the things we, we um, you know, uh, struggle with, I think, is that we've maybe all sat under preachers where it was all trying to make us feel guilty and full of shame. And so at some point you rebel from that and go, I'm not going to do that anymore at all. But it doesn't work. I've needed to be saved as a saved person. And so have you. So maybe you feel a little too sophisticated to cry out for mercy. But maybe this is put in the Songs of Ascent in one of the most important sections of the hymnal of the Jewish people that they sang three times a year as they're going up to Jerusalem because actually a cry for mercy is a very normal Christian activity. That we need to be people who know how to go, oh, God, as you continue refining me, I feel in the depths. I need to cry out for mercy. So while realizing you've made mistakes, that sin is your problem, that's a painful thing. It stings. Guilt doesn't feel good. It is, however, impossible to find the good life with Christ, the good life at all, without realizing that on your own, you end up in a pit. That's the only thing that happens. If you're driving your life, you'll drive it into a ditch eventually. When you feel the sting of shame, you either grow a hard heart full of bitterness, which happens. You blame the world for all the problems and you blame this person and that person and you blame society at large or you blame, you know, whatever. Or you cry out for mercy, which requires humility, which is really difficult to go, God, I'm wrong. God, would you incline your ears? I need mercy. You remember what mercy is? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. So the inheritance of heaven and all of the goodness in the kingdom of God is yours. That's grace. Mercy is not getting what you rightly deserve. So actually what you deserve is not love. What you deserve is punishment. What you deserve is to feel the full burden of your mistakes, of your sin. You should feel bad all the time. You're a sinner. And yet, we serve a God so loving that He delights for us to recognize our own sin and cry out for mercy. What humility that takes. Again, do you see how this needs to be regular in the life of a Christian? It shouldn't be a, a, a once a decade thing where I go, oh no, I think I've been wrong. But rather, I need to be so sensitive to my own failings that I go, whew, okay, I'm still not the perfect dad. Still not the perfect pastor. I'm still not the perfect husband. I need to cry out for mercy. A cry for mercy acknowledges not only 
our sin, but our inability to overcome our sin. It's an acknowledgement that I go, not only am I not a finished product, but I can't get there on my own. There is no amount of behavior modification. There's no books to read. There's no more, you know, there's not like I'm going to read one more book. I'm going to watch one more YouTube video and then it's, I'm going to be a finished product. No, rather a cry for mercy is an acknowledgement. Not only am I not done, but I need help getting there. The lie we tell ourselves, Christians, don't pretend I'm talking to somebody else. Would you hear me? The lie we tell ourselves is that we, if we acknowledge our sin, we cry out for mercy that we will feel weak. That we will have to admit we're wrong. That we will have to admit that just because we're Christians doesn't mean everything we think or say or do is good. But rather, that Christians are the ones who regularly know that I sin that I'm not, I'm not right all the time, that there's nothing good in me. We'll feel like a failure if we acknowledge that. But nothing could be further from the truth. This cry of mercy is the moment of strength. It's not the moment of our strength. It's the moment of God's strength. And let's be honest, from the pit, guys, if guilt and shame is a problem in your life. When you are in that pit, let's be honest, it's time to get up, give up on your strength and effort at that point. It's time to stop fighting. It's time to cry out for mercy. Which sort of feels like a big deal, but again, I think this should be normative in the Christian's life. This is repentance. This is acknowledging that you aren't safe in your own hands. Isn't that really what it is? Isn't a cry of mercy to go, God, I did grant stuff again. I used my own brain. I didn't come to you first. I used my own innovation and wisdom, and I ran it into a ditch again. I hurt people's feelings. I, I failed in all kinds of ways, and I feel bad about it. God, would you please take control again? It's an acknowledgement that you are safer in God's care than you are in your own care. When the kids were little, every once in a while, there would just be a presence by the side of the bed. You know what I mean? Like they were asleep in their bed and then now all of a sudden there's just a five-year-old standing by you. And they were stealth getting in there. At least I think so. Tiffany woke up easily. They had to jump on my head for me to know they were there. But, you know, sometimes the first thing they say is something like, I froed up. <laughs> and you go, well, there's a lot that needs to happen right now at two in the morning. This is going to be, there's no more sleep. Now we're, this is what we're doing for the rest of the night. But, you know, they didn't wake up in their illness and think, I got it from here. No, they woke up and went, I need mercy. I need somebody else to care for me. We need to be more like that. To just go to God and not go, God, I've got it all figured out. Here's the to-do list for you to solve this. And here's what I'm willing to do. But rather to just come to him and go, God, I, I, I need mercy. Look at the joy that follows this plea for mercy. And here's why this is joyful. Because while it might sting to admit 
that we need God's mercy, that, that a regular checking of our heart, that a regular grieving over our sin, that a regular understanding the, the weaknesses in us, that stings a little bit. That might be true. But we find that our cry for mercy is not met with God's judgment, but rather that His mercy is available in unlimited supply. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Hey, Christians, that's an easy thing to be like, hmm, this is about you. Which one of us stands before a holy God and goes, I think I'm doing pretty good. I think I got it. No, that's ridiculous. Why would we even have any pride about that? We should laugh about that. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. See, the experience that happens after we admit that we're sinners, that after we, we expose our own guilt before God, um, that we've run ourselves into a ditch, isn't more shame, but instead it is the joy of placing ourselves in God's care. If God was going to keep track of iniquities, we would all be toast. If we came to God with our sin just to receive the punishment we deserve, what sorrow that would be. And he would still be a just God if that was true. I mean, you remember messing up as a kid, right? And going like, look, I hid this last time and that was worse for me, so I'm just going to go take my punishment. You don't want dad to say, I'll tell you what your punishment is tomorrow. You're like, give it to me now. What is it? Here the, you know, here, here's the light to, lock to my bike. I've already locked it up. Here's the keys. You know, it's gone. I get it. But instead of a lecture, instead of approaching God and pleading for mercy and having him say, well, well, well. Look who finally figured out that they need to come to me. No, we find God ready to give us mercy. I mean, if he was keeping track of iniquities, who could stand? But in him, there is forgiveness. Instead of a lecture that leads to more guilt and shame. See, maybe that's what it is. We're afraid to be honest about our sin. We're afraid. We've got a few secret sins we've just been carrying around forever. We're just going to let them go. We got... Three people we're not going to forgive. God, I'll forgive. Seven billion people, but not these three. I'm just going to carry that around. It's going to harden my heart, and I'm going to just get, I'm just going to feel self-righteous in my bitterness. Or God, there's just this, you know, it's just this sin that I do privately. It's none of anybody else's business. Jesus died on the cross for this one too. I can't overcome it. I've just been carrying this guilt and shame. I've just learned how to hike through life carrying this too. My parents told me I was dumb and I've just considered that to be the truth and I'm just carrying that around. We think if we're honest, it's going to lead to more guilt and shame. But it doesn't. It leads to an understanding that there's forgiveness. That God, in His love, in his grandiose, ridiculous mercy, is willing to forgive you yet again. It's not even that all of your sins are forgiven. This is Watchman Nee stuff. It's not just that each of your sins are forgiven. It's that you are forgiven. The core of you. 
God is not evaluating cases on merit. You're not coming to God and going, here's why I think you should give me mercy for this one. It really wasn't that bad, and what Sally did to me was worse anyway. And, you know, I was just angry God, and I let my temper get up, and so I think you should give me a pass on this one, God. That's not the way it is. We find Christ who delights to forgive us. It's forgiveness so profound that it's scary. Did you catch that? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Do you know how terrifying a God is that can forgive every sin? Like, that's a, that is an awe-inspiring, fear-inspiring God. Do you know? That when you come to God, it's not like a casual, you know, kind of like, hey, and he's like, all right, I'll put up with this one too. Do you know what forgiveness actually is? Forgiveness, you'll remember as a banking term. I've said that a hundred times. What it means to forgive is to cancel a debt. Do you know how rich you have to be to just go around canceling everybody's debts? If I am in your debt financially, maybe you're happy to help a brother out, but eventually you're going to need that back. That's fair. That's the economy we mostly live in. And that's the emotional economy most of us live in too. I'll forgive them, but only if they say thank you or only if they ask for forgiveness. Or I did them a favor, they didn't say thank you. See if I help them again. That's the kind of like give and take kind of emotional economy we usually live in. But in God, we find such power, such glory that when he cancels our debt, his abundance is not impacted. He gives you all the mercy and grace you need and he has not lost any mercy and grace. And that is terrifying. That kind of power. That kind of abundance. In fact, isn't his glory, his renown, his fame is made more evident as he cancels our debts? This is so fun to preach. Are you in a pit? Is there nagging guilt and shame? Get out of the pit. You can't do it. But God delights. To forgive you. It's a good time to remember that 1 Corinthians 13 says that love keeps no record of wrongs. And isn't that exactly what we're learning in Psalm 130 about God? That, that He keeps no record of wrong. What's the lyric in the song we just sang that I love so much? It's that our sin has been thrown into an ocean without bottom or shore. It's not coming back. He's not holding it over your head. You're free, like really free from your sin. Love keeps no record of wrongs. It's a good time to remember that the Lord's prayer says, God, would you forgive our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us? Some modern translations say, would you forgive our debts just as we have forgiven the debts racked up against us. See, the worst thing we could do is feel the relief of forgiveness just to crawl out of the depths, out of the 
the, the, the pit of shame and guilt only to insist that others suffer in pits of their own. You with me? God's mercy is plenty for me, but my mercy is not enough for you. That's an economy we can't live in. It's one or the other. Either we're keeping score or we're not, but you don't get to not keep score for you and then keep score for everybody else. To be a forgiven people who have learned to be forgiving others. What a joyful emotional economy. Can you imagine if the church lived like that? Instead of being judges pronouncing faults, we would be abolitionists declaring freedom. Are you in the chains, the bonds of chains of guilt and shame? Let me show you how to cry out to God for mercy and find His abundance showering you with forgiveness. Freedom. In fact, maybe it is as we forgive the debts that other people are racking up against us, that's not to belittle them, that's not to say they don't matter, that's not to say the sins against you aren't real or painful or hard or true, but it is to say that the cross was enough for all of those. And so maybe as we demonstrate to the world what it looks like for us to cancel their debts, they get a glimpse of what it's like to have their debts canceled by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Maybe it is our forgiveness of people that don't deserve it that is the gateway for them to see, to experience the God who forgives people who don't deserve it. I think sometimes we get that wrong. We kind of go, tell you what, you get your act straight and you get right with God and then I'll forgive you. No, that's, that's backwards. No, rather, it is as I forgive people that don't deserve it that they get to see a glimpse of what God is like. It gets even better for the psalmist as he bounds out of the depths of guilt and shame. What comes next? Well, rest and hope. I will... I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in His Word, I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. You know, I think we all know the pain, the sting. Oh, check out the guy. He's chilling now. Everything's... Eh, the pit's there, but he's not in anymore. He's hanging out. Good for him. <laughs> We all know the pain of anxious waiting. We all know what it's like to not quite to know what to do in life. To be a little bit stuck, to have like not good options. You know, I think when you're young and you're just told like make good choices and then you're like take drugs, bad choice. Don't take drugs, good choice. But in adult life, have you noticed that it's a little more nuanced than that? You kind of go, I'm not sure what the right thing is here. There doesn't seem to be a super God-honoring decision to be made here. I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. I'm just waiting on the Lord. And I think we all know the fear of not knowing what comes next. 
In fact, what else is there if we're running our own lives, if we refuse in our stubbornness to cry out for mercy and instead we're going to deal with everything ourselves. We're not going to place ourselves in God's care. We got it. Thank you for, I punched my ticket to heaven. Really grateful for that. Really enjoy the self-righteousness, the pharisaical self-righteousness that comes with calling myself a Christian. But really, God, I've got it from here. I'm going to run my own life. What else is there except fear of the future? We don't know the future. And we might not be okay when we get there. But in life, waiting is not an option. There's going to be lots of times of waiting in each of our lives. Well, how will we wait? From the depths, when you still are carrying guilt and shame, we will wait with dread, with fear. We'll not know what to do in life, and that won't be okay. We will not know the next step to take and instead of a relaxed, peaceful uh, countenance, we will be just white knuckling through life just hoping that it's not a, you know, a cliff that we're going to drop off of any minute. But when we've been washed with mercy, when God's forgiveness has worked its way through our hearts, what are we worried about? Once we've cast, as Peter says, once we've cast all our cares on him because we know that he cares for us, are you better at caring for yourself or is God better at caring for you? Talk amongst yourself. Um, once you like, if that's like where you actually are, if you actually say, if God could forgive a wretch like me, if he loved me enough to pull me out of the pit of guilt and shame, I could probably trust him with what happens next year. Once you're washed in mercy, hope is what happens. We don't wait with dread or anxiety, but with hope. The word for a hope is a word that doesn't mean like wish fulfillment. It gets translated hope a lot and gets translated wait a lot. So you might use this word hope. Where is it? So I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word, I hope. Okay, so that word, you would use that word like while you're waiting at the airport for a dear friend to show up. Now, you didn't just drive the airport that day and go, I hope Jack comes today. <laughs> Gee, I wish Jack was on this next plane. No, rather, he texts you an itinerary. He, he texts you that morning and was like, Taken off, see you soon, loser. And you're like, I love that guy. <laughs> My friend Jack, you just have very few friends this good in your life. I sent him a picture of me and my referee stripes. You know, I referee basketball games. I was like, all right, I'm, just, I'm in for another season of ref and basketball games. And he sent a video saying, just so you know, I only go to basketball games to yell at the ref. See, <laughs> that's the kind of love in a friend you're looking for. That's good. That's good. I gave him a technical foul. He lives in Missouri. <laughs> but if Jack's flying in and he's texted me the information, I know the flight number, and I'm, I'm sitting there with hope. And it's not like, I wish this might happen, but it's like, this is going to happen. It hasn't happened quite yet, but it's a, it's a sure thing. Did you see how it said, in the psalmist said, he, he, he waits as a watchman for the morning. A watchman is not sitting on his shift going, 
Is the day going to come? Will the sun come up? No, he knows. In fact, he probably has a way to tell the time. He even knows how far it is until the sun comes up. And yet it's not there yet, so he's waiting, hopefully. This is how we wait on the Lord. Once forgiveness has worked its way through us, we are waiting with expectation. It's a sure thing. Jesus loves me. This I know. And in specifically, what are we waiting? Verse 5 says that our soul, the very core of us, waits in His Word, the law of God. We wait in what we know God desires. So this is not just about like a one-time, hey God, I messed up, I'm crying out for mercy. But then also the psalmist says, I'm reordering my life according to God's Word. I'm not working myself out of the pit. It's God's mercy that's pulling me out of the pit. But then I am going to reorder my behavior so it's in line with God's word. This is how we wait. And there are times in life for all of us where it's a season of waiting. There are decisions that are hard to make. And there are things coming up that I'm not quite sure what to do. And there's, you know, there's difficulty ahead. So what do we do? Well, we continually are crying out to God for mercy, and we're reordering our lives in line with His will, not ours. We've repented, we've cried out, we align our minds and our behavior with God's Word, and then we wait expectantly for God to save us in all kinds of ways. Unconfessed sin leads to anxious waiting. Hey church, unconfessed sin leads to anxious waiting. I'll say this again here in a second, but as I've read about revivals, you guys want to be a part of a revival? You want to see, you want to see God do stuff we can't explain? You want to see the pews full with people and we're like, where'd all these people come from? What program did we run? There wasn't a program. People are just showing up. You know what two things are true of every great revival is prayer and confession of sin. It's not great music. It's not great preaching. Praise the Lord. No, rather it's that the church gets good at confessing sin and praying. Unconfessed sin leads to anxious waiting. And you don't have to tell anybody here, but you should. But if you want to start just you and God, confess your sins that you may have a right heart. And then... Our cry for mercy finds its ultimate solution, its ultimate like, like purpose when we are out of the depths and we're on mission. Verse 7 says, Oh Israel, hope in the Lord. Say, do you see how all of a sudden he's turned into evangelist? Right? He started with just eight, eight verses, and he starts just in this dire pit, just him, darkness, crying out to God. But now all of a sudden the guy is like yelling to everybody, Oh Israel! Hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and in Him is plentiful redemption, and He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. Oh, His, his forgiveness is so complete that He's sure it'll work for you too. This is where evangelistic zeal comes from. Not from guilt, not from good strategies, not from you better invite somebody, no. But from the joy of our salvation. 
I've been a part of a lot of evangelism training. A lot of it had, you know, had its merit. There was confidence boosting and there were good strategies and helping to know what to say when talking with an unbeliever. But by far, the most important thing we need to tell others about salvation is the joy of our own salvation. If you know a way I could drop 50 pounds without any effort and you're not telling me, it's just mean. (laughs) If you know a way that I could be forgiven from guilt and shame, if you have been forgiven from guilt and shame, it's an exciting thing to share. There's such joy when we place ourselves in God's care. How could we help but tell others? Did you see what he says? For with the Lord there is steadfast love. Where are you going to find that? You know anybody who needs steadfast love? You know anybody with broken relationships who's like, I just don't think anybody in the whole, I am in despair. Nobody loves me. The people who promised they were going to love me have been mean and left. Well, in the Lord there is steadfast love. What a message. A joyful Christian is always the best evangelist. Joyful Christians. A joyful church. Do you remember what evangelism means, right? Evangel is good news. So, um, you know, if we say we're evangelical, it just means we're like people of the good news. At least that's what it used to mean before it was like, you know, how to get votes or whatever dumb um just people of the good news an evangelist is somebody who proclaims good news who knows the good news more than people with a fresh sense of forgiveness that is the good news it sounds a little funny doesn't it that evangelism begins with confession of sin but of course it does without our reconciliation what do we have to offer? With, with hope, with our hope being in the Lord, we have some, something to invite people to. You cannot give to people what you don't have. If we were going to say, what's the strategy for evangelizing Seaside? Now, I do the math sometimes, and I go, okay, how many... Youth kids are, you know, regularly at Shoreline. How many, you know, how many of those kids come from Seaside? How about Calvary? Okay, all the churches in Seaside. How big are those youth groups, the kids that go to Seaside? I, I bet you it's, I mean, Seaside High School is a big place. I, I bet you there's less than 50 kids that are regularly in church in Seaside. You know why? Because there's very few families are in church on a Sunday morning. What's our strategy? Should we just make them feel bad about being sinners? <laughs> Should we win an election? <laughs> Come on. So ridiculous. No, we should be joyful Christians and go where they are. It starts with our confession of sin, with us getting out of the pit of guilt and shame. The church needs encouragement to get out of the pit of guilt and shame. To not hide behind, well, when I was six, I became a Christian and that was the end of the deal. No, but rather that we regularly, consistently know the fresh 
joy of our salvation. So this is why you sing this song to the family while you're marching up to Jerusalem, because it's a joyful thing. It's the impact of a joyful church. We want a healthy American church, don't we? We, we? we want a healthy church in Seaside, don't we? Confession of sin is the pursuit of joy in Christ. Revivals start with confession, with repentance. It's not that Christians have figured out how to live the perfect lives and we have a program to give people. It's that Christians have figured out that in our pursuit to live a perfect life, we ended up in a ditch. But we have found forgiveness, even in the middle of our guilt and shame. What a wonderful thing to teach each other. What a wonderful thing to sing as we journey towards intimacy with God. At the root of both becoming a Christian, our initial salvation, and living a Christian life is a simple daily decision to cry for mercy, to put ourselves in God's care. About, about 60 of us in the room today, maybe? Feel about right? Maybe 70? Revivals start with confession. And that means there are 70 revivals in the room. What would it look like if Psalm 130 was so on our lips, so in our hearts, that the journey from pits of shame and guilt to the mountaintop of a seaside, I have found steadfast love. God will be faithful to forgive all of your iniquities. What if that was not an occasional thing, but that was a daily journey? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this really beautiful psalm. Lord, I just liked it a lot. It was, it was, it was great to, to spend time in this week. Lord, it's one thing to see the beauty of the the words on the page. It's another thing to live that beauty in our lives. And I do pray, Lord, that you would help us to overcome the things that get in the way of us being people who confess regularly. Lord, us being people who cry for mercy, who acknowledge our own sin before you. Lord, for the pride in our hearts and for the, the years of scars and the pain and, and, and the, the lie that we all kind of hang on to, that it's going to be worse if we're honest. Lord, I just pray against all of that and pray that we would be people who regularly are confessing to you and crying out for mercy and also helping each other that none of us would have the kind of pride that we would freak out if somebody said, hey, I'm a sinner, I'm crying out for mercy, would you do it with me, Lord? But that we would be people that in our integrity, in our honesty, in our trust of you, Lord, that we would regularly come to you, our Redeemer, and say, God, as I cry out, Lord, I'm eager to experience freedom from guilt and shame. Lord, there might be somebody in the room with, with hidden sin, maybe, maybe sin that's not so hidden, that is just really struggling. Lord, they did a great job today. They put clothes on and came to church and figured out how to do all this, but it's just inside, it's just tearing them up. Lord, if that person's here, I just pray 
that they would have the courage to be honest with you, that they might experience your great love and mercy and forgiveness. I love you, God. Thank you for the joy of our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.